Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Dan Gray, and for the next hour, I have Eddie Chacon here on Soho Radio talking about his new album, Pleasure, Joy and Happiness, which has been released on Day End Records. Eddie has made a playlist which is going to talk us through uh, with songs that actually inspired the record, and we'll be talking about how the process worked with John Carroll Kirby. Right, the first one on the playlist, um, and for everybody out there, it's called Songs That Inspired at Each Come, Pleasure, Joy, and Happiness, and it's on Spotify. But the first song you'll hear is Spaced Cowboy uh, by Sly and the Family Stone, and it's it's from the record, uh, there's a riot going on, I believe. But um, I've always been attracted to how unbelievably wonky uh, some of the Sly and the Family Stone stuff is. And I think you can really hear this influence on the first song on my record, Trouble. Um, yeah, I love how it's kind of fizzy and noisy and 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 in all the noise and wonkiness just to me contributes to the whole spirit and feel of the song. So um, that's why it's on the playlist. And it really did inspire um, what I was going after in the record. Well, let's have a little listen to those back to back. So this is Space Cowboy from Slime the Family Stone and straight after Trouble by Eddie Chacon. As a 10-year-old, uh, I absolutely loved uh, your song, well, Charles and Eddie's Would Have Lied To You, Baby. That was, it was a massive, massive, massive hit globally, Aussie, as you're more than aware. Um, uh, and I was like, and they have that, that really good article about sort of how we wrote this and, you know, reminiscent of these times. And that obviously that article came out. I was like, oh, wow, I, I want to know more about this. And I had no idea that, you know, that there was going to be like, oh, a new album. And I was like, oh, well, I need to check it out and see what he's up to now. But then I, I can't believe how inspired this is. It's a masterpiece, my friend, at 57 years old, if you don't mind me saying. I just would like to know a little bit more how this came around. Like, was it the record company? Did you have these songs or was it with John? So, ladies and gentlemen, this uh, album, uh, Pleasure, Joy and Happiness, was being produced by John Carroll Kirby, um, fantastic producer who's worked with the likes of Solange and Frank Ocean and more recently uh, Yellow Days, a, a UK artist. Um, yeah, 
Eddie, would you mind filling me in a little bit more about how this whole project came to life? Yeah, I uh, I was basically coming off of uh, a 10-year break from music. Mm-hmm. And um, I suppose I suppose uh, I started to miss it after uh, after such a long time away, but I I I had an idea. I you know, I I've always felt stumbling a bit here, but I've always only really made records when I felt like I had something to say. Right. And I think in that 10-year period, I just felt like I ran out of things to say and I I didn't really I wasn't really inspired to make anything. And I guess at the end of that 10 per- 10-year period, I started to feel kind of the same kind of overwhelmed feeling with the pace of life and the intensity of social media and 24-hour news. And I just started to personally feel like, like I wanted to make something that was very the opposite of that energy, something that just kind of got in you rather than hit you over the head, something that kind of was meditative and, and rejuvenating something that people could recharge their batteries to and I think that was the seed that was the beginning of me starting to have an inkling of I think that this could be a very cool record and then of course after that shortly after that a dear friend uh, who knew both John Kirby and I said I think you two would really hit it off and I would love to introduce you guys um, of which I was a fan of what John was doing he already makes this beautiful meditative music um, but you know, at the same time, I have to say that I was I was nervous. I felt like he's doing this beautiful music. He's a, a beautiful contemporary producer. I'm not so sure that he's going to want to work with a 56 year old guy who hasn't done anything significant in quite a long time. So I was a bit nervous about that. <laughs> but um, we did wind up having a meeting from the very get go. I thought it was going to be a 20, 30 minute coffee meeting and we wound up sitting in my car for a few hours, really hitting it off and playing each other ideas back and forth. And I remember I was so comfortable with him immediately that I remember I was even singing in the car <laughs> ideas to him and banging out beats on my lap with, you know, hitting my lap with my hands. And yeah, so that's kind of, that was kind of the beginning of how it all came together. It was kind of happenstance in a weird way. That's amazing. I love that. And um, where did you actually record it? Um, was it, did you like sort of, did you go through the stages of like writing together and then trying out demos or was it very much like straight in the studio, let's get rolling? Like what was the process? Yeah, it was very, I, I have to, kind of, it, was, it was very informal. In fact, it was so informal that to be honest with you, I, I don't think I actually knew um, when we were recording in the in the early days of the record, that we were actually making the record, um, because John had this real informal studio set up in the living room of his best friend's um, house, and so I would just be kind of like slumped, you know, slumped down deep into this comfortable chair, uh, sitting about you know ten feet behind him, and he would be at his at his desk you know, putting together these beautiful musical landscapes. And then suddenly he would just turn around and hand me a microphone. I mean, we're talking no headphones, the speakers are on, and and he's like, you want to sing something? And I would just kind of casually um, do this kind of stream of consciousness thing where 
I really, oftentimes, on some of the songs that wound up on the record, like Outside, I didn't actually know what I was going to sing before I sang it. I just was feeling very inspired by what I was hearing, and, and it kind of just poured out of me. And then surprisingly, because it was so different from how I'd ever worked in the past, it was so easy and, and, and had this kind of chill, informal vibe about it. He would just say, yeah, I like that, and, and let's roll with that. And, uh, and a lot of what you hear on the record is that kind of stream of consciousness kind of vibe that we were just rolling with. And it was funny too, because I would be driving home in the car after spending two or three hours with him and I'd get a ping on my phone. And by the time I got home, he would have already sent me a mix of what we did <laughs> that I could listen to in the car. And I don't know, it just, it just kind of had an easy flow to it that way. And how long was this kind of period going on for? Like, was this something that you did? like sporadically like oh i'll come over oh, and i'll see you again in a couple of weeks or was it quite intense or yeah no i really love that about john i mean i got a very i got a great feel about his um who he is as a person and how he likes to work right away i mean you know i live in a town you know la i mean it's it's not it's it's not known for for you know people being super reliable i mean it can be kind of flaky the way people operate in la but john was far and away an amazing exception to that i mean when he said he wanted to work together after having coffee man he was texting me the following day and over the next three or four months he would just text me every day or every other day uh, and be like hey you want to come over and jam and i was like man i love this guy i love the way he's just so He's so ready to do it, like such a man of action. And so, yeah, we 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 worked quite regularly, unless he was working on another. He went to uh, um, he went to New York a few times to work with Frank Ocean during that period, and was also doing some things with Solange at the same time. And uh, and um, George uh, Yellow Days. So when he wasn't doing that stuff, he was hitting me up. Uh, almost regularly I'd be popping over to his studio for a few hours here and there that's incredible I love that I absolutely love it so yeah once John gets into something he's into it you know yeah yeah it was really impressive and and so what period was this that um was this last year or 2018 or um yeah it was um yeah it was uh I suppose last year yeah yeah, yeah, because I remember my wife and I went on vacation in December and we had already finished the record. I was just really enjoying, like, listening to it and, and uh, settling in and, and planning, making a plan of action about who was going to release it and how we were going to go about getting it out in the world. And, so, yeah, it was so, finished by Christmas of last year. And, and so it was released by Day End Records. Um, yeah, who were these guys? I, I've not heard of these, uh, well, heard of them before. That was another um, really amazing happenstance thing that happened to me is John had um, this, the, his name is Jack Sills. He's a wonderful guy who is, um, it's a small record label called Day End Records and he's only ever released, I think, one other thing other than my record. Um, but he is um, Light in the Attic alumni and I'm such a big fan of Light in the Attic that I just love that he um, that he worked there and that and that um, 
they were so tight and he he had such a good relationship with them and he told me that if he released my record it would come out on it would be distributed by Light in the Attic and that they really loved the record and that they would really um, lend their support um, and get behind it. And that was just thrilling to me because uh, I just, you know, I just have like incredible esteem for Light in the Attic. <laughs> um, so that was another thing that happened. John introduced me to Jack. He had come into the studio in the early, in the early part of recording and just sat and listened to some stuff. And then oddly enough, I guess um, he was still working at Light in the Attic at that time. And I go for these long morning walks around my neighborhood and Light in the Attic's office is right near my house. So I would always run into Jack every morning um, just on my way to get coffee. And so him and I had a few street corner conversations um, and that was kind of how I got to know him. So when the record was done, he was kind of one of the first people that I went to. And I didn't ask him for a record deal. I actually asked him for his advice on how to get a record deal because I've been out of the game for a really long time. Um, so that's how I got to know him. I love that. I love that, how these little things can just all kind of come together. It's the perfect synergy, you know? Yeah. And um, I just love the whole imagery behind the record and the videos. Uh, and am I right in thinking you've been a photographer in the last decade? Is that is that right? Um, I have been. I, um, in the time that I stopped doing music, I got very caught up in fashion photography and art directing and started working as a creative director for um, an art publication called Otra Magazine. And um, it was a great learning experience. And um, I kind of fell into it as well because my wife is a wardrobe stylist um, and art director. And she's actually the person that directed all of my videos. Well, I was about to say, the yeah, I, I read that she'd uh, directed Wicked World. And um, I mean, it, it's off the scale, mate. It's just so, so beautiful. And those, the live sessions that you've done with John as well, I mean, they're just, they're just dressed so beautiful, so beautifully. You know, the instrument. I have to thank my wife for that. She's she's just fantastic in that way. She has beautiful taste, beautiful aesthetic, and and a real command of how to do this stuff. And uh, yeah, it's it's quite it's it's a fortunate team, you know, that I have John producing and and my wife, who's a a, a great director and wardrobe stylist and art director so it's been fortunate I'm, i feel really blessed about the way things you know it's really strange you can do this for years and years and then occasionally the stars line up i used to feel that about when i was working with charles as well i had i had worked for so many years in the music business but you know it can be quite mundane in your struggle and and you're just moving along and few and far between, you have these amazing periods where the stars seem to line up and you do something that resonates with people. Yeah, well, that track especially, is, you know, well, not just Would I Lie with, with Charles, but, you know, that whole movement, the fact that you got to do the true romance. How did that yeah. come about, um, if you don't mind me going back to that? 
No, I don't. I don't mind at all. Um, that was very much when what I lie to you was, I suppose, at its peak, and our manager got a uh, request from the 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 guys that were making True Romance. It was a it was a Quentin Tarantino script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, of course, at that time, I don't think anyone was hotter than Quentin Tarantino. So I think we said yes without even reading the brief. Of course. <laughs> um, but it was an exciting time. We were traveling all over Europe at that time, doing a lot of radio promotion, a lot of shows, a lot of concerts. Um, and um, I remember we read the brief and I came up with the core of that song, Wounded Bird. And um, we were in Bologna and I think we finished the songwriting in Bologna and then flew somewhere in Germany the next day and recorded the demo, sent the demo off. It all happened very quickly. Um, sent the demo off and they just loved it and wanted us to go in a, a much bigger studio and do like the proper the proper recording of it. So as soon as we got back to LA, we we did that. And um, yeah, that's how all that went down. So how old were you when you when you first met Charles and and that sort of sort of early 90s you know wh where were you based then was you were you in LA or was that I was between LA New York and Miami um, it's a long long story of the context of how all that came together but at the time that I met Charles I was I was in New York um, when we had our sort of crazy subway meeting um, and uh, yeah, but at the time I was kind of bouncing between LA, New York, and Miami. But that, like you know, to have a global hit like you did, I mean, um, that can keep you on the road itself. I mean, how long was that whirlwind that you were involved in? Like, you know, was that, that whirlwind was five years of nonstop travel. Uh, seriously, just flying constantly, and and it was so. It was so strange because it made no sense. It, it completely followed the path of wherever our presence was, was requested. So you'd sometimes find yourself flying from New York to Germany, back to LA, back to London, back to New York, and then back to, you know, um, Scandinavia or something like Norway. It was just really odd. And it was all just based on the timing of different television appearances and radio appearances and and maybe like a festival or two that we we picked up along the way it was it was exciting but also unbelievably exhausting yeah i can only imagine i mean that i mean i feel like things that happen now globally with the internet it's such a different thing to what it was back then there was such more of a ripple and a wave of something you know work in one territory that would cross over to another to another to another um, but it would take a bit more time where I feel like now with the internet, it's just so much more, so more immediate. Um, yeah, yeah, it really is. I, I mean, most people don't know it, but what I lie to you actually did not take off immediately. And um, it actually was 
falling flat at radio. And the record company came back to us and asked us what we thought. And it was only because we had a very good manager that he was able to persuade them to give it two more weeks of promotion. Um, and had it not taken off in those two weeks, I suppose, would I lie to you, would have fallen flat and nothing would have ever come of it. But during that two weeks, I think Elton John called um, <laughs> Radio One and said that he really loved the song and that he didn't understand why they weren't jumping on it. And I think that helped tremendously. That was just one of those incredible breaks. I hope you thanked Elton for that. <laughs> I did have the opportunity to thank him. When he came to New York and played Madison Square Garden, he sent a car for us and and uh, he wanted to meet us and we went and took photos with him and hung out with him backstage and had some beautiful front row seats. He, he was just unbelievably uh, kind as he's, as he's well known for being. He really is a supporter of new talent. Yeah, I mean... Hamish, we were talking just before uh, the interview started about uh, our friend uh, uh, Uncle Ham, Hamish Stewart from the Average White Band. And basically Hamish says when they first went over to the States, it was basically Elton John driving him around personally, introducing him to everyone, going, these guys are it. You know, and he just said it just opened all the doors for them, you know. He truly is that, that man. Yeah. So, oh man, that's fantastic. But So your wife directed the video. You, you've uh, collaborated with her uh, previously. Did you have a, a duo, am I right, saying the, um, the polyamorous affair? Yeah, we did that for a few years in 2010. It was sort of during the, the um, Atello disco trend. And, and um, yeah, yeah, it's funny. I, you know, my wife, I actually quite like it. And I thought she was excellent. And it was a lot of fun, um, but she's she. I kind of dragged her into it. it. She doesn't see herself as a musician, um, but I thought it was great. It was an incredible experience. And and actually, had it not been for that, um, I don't think she would have discovered that she would be spending her life as a wardrobe stylist and an art director. Because while she didn't fancy doing the music too much, she really fell into or really discovered that she loved making the videos right. and doing visuals and creating um you know styling I, I love that i love the fact that collaborating via music gets her into doing the art direction into wardrobe into styling which then 10 years later she's at the fore of that in that world and bringing you back to life with music with her style as well it's i love that full circle yeah, it really is full circle. It's just one thing really leads to another, doesn't it? So, I'd, in regards to the, the record, um, I mean... Was there something with you and John, going back to that, did you give him any idea of, like, instrumentation that you liked? Uh, or was it more of this, like, sending him tracks going, I want to go down this vibe? Um, how did that work, you know, after the meeting in the car? Yeah, we sent a lot of things back and forth to each other. Um, he introduced me to um, things like Laraji and... Um, 
I think that I, uh, I still, while I was kind of obsessed with, I didn't want to make a cliche comeback record of retro 70s soul, but there were still elements of like say Marvin Gaye, Sam Cooke, the, you know, the great classics that everybody knows that I'm, I'm into from, from Charles Nettie. Um, I still wanted to have some of that kind of instrumental support behind my voice, but I just wanted it to be in a super contemporary and fresh way and be coming from a completely different perspective. Um, so I think we turned each other on to some different ingredients that we were hoping to squeeze into the cocktail. Yeah, it's... But I have this thing, you know, I think, I think I have to give John credit for it. He just has this way of taking something and flipping it on its on its ear, you know? Yeah, I mean, I really feel it's like such an intimate record. Um, and just some of these like primitive drum machines, which kind of hark on like the sort of Timothy Thomas, Why Can't We Live Together or The Sly and the Family Stone, mm-hmm. you know. It's just absolutely beautiful. And then something like Above Below, that sounds like a British band. Do you know a band called Metronomy? Um, yeah. I remember Metronomy, but yeah. I can't quite so, yeah. place. Have a listen. Oh, They've got an album called Riviera. English Riviera. Have a listen to that album. Okay, I will. Along with Ned Dahini, like we mentioned. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, there's something reminiscent of, of that. It's, I mean, yeah. I feel that. Yeah, I... I, I um, I think when we did Above Below, I had played John Natural High by Bloodstone. Right. I was feeling like some of that kind of easy vibe would be very cool to have on the record. I see you had some Bobby Wright on the playlist as well. Right, a lot of American. Yeah. um, That song is just phenomenal i only heard it for the first time uh, a couple of years ago uh, and actually I, I kind of forgotten about it um, yeah but yeah is that something that you you grew up on or was that something that you got switched no, on to um, i i only discovered discovered it going down the deep rabbit hole that you can find yourself going down um in Spotify. <laughs> yeah. um but you know i only recently read the story of the song and 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 him and I guess he was in a band previously that two of the band members got um, drafted to Vietnam and one of them actually didn't make it back. He was killed in action. And uh, I guess that's what Blood of, Amer- Blood of an American is about. But what I was attracted to in the song and what inspired my record is uh, it's very earnest. Yeah. Um, and I wanted my record. At age 50, making a record at age 56, I wanted to shed all the pretense. And um, I was thinking a lot about the word nothingness. And if you break down that word, it's no thingness. And I just wanted my record at age 50, I'm 57 now, but 56 at the time. I wanted it to be uh, no gimmicks, no pretense, no persona. I just wanted it to have an element of earnestness without it being, of course, you know, schlocky or cheesy or any of those things. But I did want it to be honest, and so I was very attracted to. to uh, there's a few songs on the on the. Um, in fact, you know, most of this playlist has that quality about it. It's very earnest songs. It's an earnest group of songs. 
Um, I must admit, after sort of going through it this morning, I had to do a little bit more digging on Bobby and to sing. I, I wondered if he was still around or what, but he's he's changed his name. He's now Abu Talib. And right. He actually runs a community growing farm in the Bronx. Yeah, called the Takwa Community Farm. And you can go and visit oh. him, and he's just helping the local community there, which is quite amazing. And his, and he's, you know, in his mid seventies. It is. So yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, quite something. So let's have a little listen to Bobby, aka Abu Talib, and Bird of an American. This world. So you've got a Julian Iglesias track on there, like. Yeah, I know that probably very much would surprise people, <laughs> but I've just been obsessed with Julio Iglesias ever since I was a little kid, and to this day. I just, especially the song that I put on the playlist is a song that is just, to me, one of the greatest, most influential tracks probably in my music career. It's just the, the he had quite a commercial American career, you know, later on, I think in the 80s where he did um, duets with Willie Nelson and things like that. But if you listen to his 70s material, it was just so, he was a young guy and he just has this incredible timbre to his voice. I, re- I truly think he has one of the most beautiful voices I've ever heard. And could you introduce this one, please, Eddie? Um, I hope I pronounce it correctly, but it is Me Ovida De Vivir by Julio Iglesias. And it's really one of my favorite songs of all time. That is a lovely number. It's got kind of a reminiscent um, melody line to Daniel by Elton John. Elton back there again. Ah, interesting. interesting. You know what I love about it is, um, and I may have learned this or from making this observation as a kid when I used to li- listen to it, but I always think when I make music that I want to combine melancholy and celebration and he, this song just so has that kind of spirit. It's melancholic, but it also feels very happy and joyful and elevating. But it's got that beautiful kind of chugginess that, um, like, uh, Nielsen's Everybody's Talking At Me. You know, it, uh, yeah, it's really, really special. Another, another favourite, definitely. Yeah. You also mentioned La Raji, which, who I'd never, ever heard of uh, before, in all honesty. Uh, but that is what my rabbit hole will be going to later on this evening, I feel. Right, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to get into there. He's just fantastic. Yeah, I, I've seen that he's he's based in New York. I'm, I'm going to do this, the shameless plug. We're actually going to be opening Soho Radio New York in the next few weeks. So I think I'll be trying to hit him up to either come in as a guest or see if he'd be interested oh, in doing a one-off be, show. That would be fantastic. Yeah. So, um, and what was this one called? This is Laws of Manifest Station. Laws of manifestation, excuse me. Know that you got it, see yourself with it, declare that you want it now. See yourself with it, feel yourself with it, give you thanks for it now. Are on your side today. The laws of manifestation are on your side today. 
So that was Laws of Manifestation by Laraji. Um, yeah. I'd love you to sort of tell me a little bit more about um, sort of hurt. And where was that coming from? Was that, again, the continuation of stream of consciousness? Or was that something specific? Uh, which song? Hurt, sorry. Oh, right, Hurt. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Hurt is the one song on the record that the lyric was actually pulled from one of the last songs that I wrote before I quit making music 10 years ago. Oh, wow. And yeah, and I just never forgot it. And I just found myself singing it to myself during the whole 10 years that I wasn't making music. I remembered that song. <laughs> and What's um, a mantra. Yeah. So it was actually, a, I actually tried singing that lyric to a few different tracks that John had created before landing on that one. I mean, it's, yeah, what a sentiment. It is a, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. So, Eddie, I think we've got time for one more. Um, thanks again for joining us. What would you like to hear to finish this off? I think it'd be nice to play, uh, to wrap it up with Distant Lover. Uh, it's one of my favorites. He's always been one of my favorites. Probably, I think most people would know he's pivotal to pivotal inspiration for my whole career going back 35 years. Um, and what's most interesting about it is that it is Distant Lover by Marvin Gaye live at the Oakland Coliseum, which was just a short train ride from where I was raised. And thank you very much for your time, Eddie. And ladies and gentlemen, you must go out and buy or stream Pleasure, Joy and Happiness. Thank you. You may recognize this thing, my Trouble Man album. It's one of my favorite things, so I thought we'd have Gene Pace.